scattered around the contemporary city are thirty other plaques with passages from the comedy, evoking a range of places Dante had known and moments and persons he had known or heard about in his thirty-five years of Florentine life. The Arno and Ponte Vecchio, the venerable baptistry, Mio Bel San Giovanni, Dante called it, Via del Corso, a main thoroughfare in Dante's neighborhood with its cluster of rich and potent families, the Church of San Miniato, perched high above the river on its south side, Brunetto Latini, the great humanist and Dante's tutor in classical literature, Farinata, the most valiant among the Florentine Ghibellines, and, of course, Dante's mythically beloved Beatrice. She is captured verbally in a passage near the end of the Purgatorio, a visionary presence who will escort Dante through the Christian heavens, here garbed in a green mantle that seems to glow like a living flame, wearing a snow-white veil crowned with olive. The plaque offering this image is attached to Number 4 Via del Corso, on the palazzo that once belonged to Beatrice's father, Folco Portinari. Dante associated himself with his native city to a degree almost incomprehensible in modern times. Florence was not merely his birthplace, it was the very context of his being. He was Dante Alighieri, a distinct individual with a classic profile and a sometimes tempestuous disposition. He had intimate friends like his sportive neighbor Forese Donati, literary colleagues like the older poet Guido Cavalcanti, and deadly enemies like Forese's brother Corso. He was the dedicated lover from a distance of Beatrice Fortinari until her death at an early age in 1290, and a few years later he composed in her memory his first major work, the Vita Nuova, the story in prose and poetry of his devotion to her from the age of nine. In the course of time, Dante became a married man, his wife was another and more sedate member of the Donati clan, with three children. But he was an ardent personality, and more than once, in pursuit of other Florentine maidens, he lost the straight way, to borrow his phrase at the opening of the Inferno. Even in his lifetime, as the first two canticles of the Divine Comedy began to circulate around 1315, he was recognized as the greatest Italian poet, the Somo Poeta, of his age. But he was first and last a Florentine, and indeed, on one level, his masterwork, the comedy, is an expression of his passionate feelings about Florence, his rage against the conspirators who had driven him out, his longing to return. His entire life was entangled with the history of Florence, and that history in turn was in part the offspring of the old European struggle between the so-called Guelphs and the so-called Ghibellines. The two names are of German extraction, Belf and Weiblingen, respectively, and originally in the twelfth century referred to two combative noble German houses. As the controversy expanded in the early thirteenth century, the Ghibellines became the party supporting the claims of the Holy Roman Emperor to absolute authority in Europe, and the Guelphs, the party backing the papacy in its rival claim. Guelphs and Ghibellines were next seen fighting it out within cities like Florence and Bologna, but by this time the two names referred not to the larger controversy, but to warring local factions. In Florence, the Buondelmontes belonged to the Guelph party, and the Amidei and Uberti to the Ghibellines. 
Within Tuscany, the Guelph Ghibelline fracas reached two climaxes in the half-century after 1215. There were lesser upheavals along the way, the Ghibellines, for example, battering down 36 Guelph towers in Florence in 1248, and the Guelphs, replying in kind two years later, filling the streets with the rubble of smashed Ghibelline domiciles. In 1260, at Monteperti, a village on the Ardia, near Siena, the Ghibelline hordes won a decisive victory. The leading Guelph families were banished, and the city very nearly came to an end. The Ghibelline commanders, meeting at Empoli, west of Florence, voted to raise Florence to the ground. Only Farinata degli Uberti stood out against them, declaring himself to be a Florentine first and a Ghibelline second, and vowing that he would defend his native city with his own sword. The Ghibellines thereupon took the lesser course of knocking down a hundred and three palaces, five hundred eighty houses, and eighty-five towers. When the Guelphs regained control of the city in 1266, they expressed their gratitude to Farinata by destroying every building belonging to the Uberti clan, in what is now Piazza della Signoria, declaring as well that no building should ever again be erected in that accursed space. This is why Palazzo Vecchio, begun in the 1290s, is not in the center of the piazza, as one might expect, but squeezed over to one side. Dante comes upon Farinata in the sixth circle of the Inferno, reserved for heretics, and here's the Ghibelline chieftain, motionless within his fiery tomb, asking about the harsh reprisals against his family. It was, Dante tells him, the havoc and the great slaughter that dyed the Arbia Red that had so roused the Florentine Guelph enmity. But in all of that, Farinata says, I was not alone. Yet I was alone when everyone else voted to destroy Florence. I alone with open face defended her. In 1266, in any case, the Guelphs, under the leadership of Charles of Anjou, summoned to Italy by the crafty Pope Clement IV, utterly routed the Ghibelline forces at Benevento, northeast of Naples. The Ghibelline imperialists had at their head Manfredi, an illegitimate son of the Emperor Frederick II, and a man Dante rather admired, placing him in purgatory among the excommunicated, with a chance yet for salvation. While hope still blossoms, in Manfredi's wistful saying. But for Dante's family and their friends, the victory at Benevento was the restoration of their lives and the making of their city. All the Guelph exiles returned. The Ghibellines never again occupied any corner of Florence, though they posed intermittent threats, as will be seen, in other parts of Tuscany. Dante was one year old in 1266, and he grew up in a city that was at last fully realizing itself. It had been moving fitfully toward that goal for a good many years, in a series of developments that led both to prosperity and to a gathering self-image, a feeling for the primacy of the civic and the public over the private and the factional, combined with a sense of the larger importance of the merchant class as against the nobility. The Florentine merchants began to form themselves into guilds, or arti, as early as 1206, when the Bankers' Guild was founded. There followed the Wool Guild of 1212, the Silk Guild on Por Santa Maria in 1218, and much later apothecaries, judges, notaries, and others, well into Dante's lifetime. 
Eventually, there were seven major merchant guilds and fourteen minor, or artisan, guilds, butchers, bakers, blacksmiths, leather workers, and the like. The guilds were the source of stability and continuity in 13th century Florence, a vital bureaucracy that held the city together and kept the economy expanding while Guelphs and Ghibellines came and went. The surging Florentine economy was based principally upon banking and international trade in luxury items, especially handsomely adorned leather goods. And it was a telling moment in the Florentine annals when, in 1252, the first gold florin was minted and almost instantly became the basic monetary measure in Europe. For it was engraved not, as had been customary, with the image of a pope or emperor, but with the symbols of the city. On one side, San Giovanni, the patron saint of Florence. On the other side, the lily, the city's secular emblem. Dante made a public gesture of allegiance in 1295 by entering the guild of apothecaries. By a bit of legal stretching, philosophers and men of letters could inscribe therein. Meanwhile, he could take pride in the ways the city was completing itself physically. By the time of his birth, four bridges spanned the Arno at strategic intervals, uniting the northern and southern sections, and in particular making the hitherto disregarded section known as Oltrarno, beyond the Arno, a significant part of the urban whole. The bridge Buon del Monte rode across to his death in 1216 had then been the only passageway over the river. About five years later, a second bridge was erected a short distance downriver. It was given the name Ponte Nuovo, the new bridge. It is now Ponte Alacaraya, and the pre-existing one immediately.